So we're going to read the passage together. 1 John, in chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And I'm going to ask us to do something here as we do this. You know, one of the benefits or advantages or just kind of the things that we got to experience as we traveled to multiple different churches over the summer on sabbatical is you see people doing, in a sense, gathering in different ways, right? There are these non-negotiable elements that people participate in in almost every church you go to, but the form is sometimes different. And one of the observations I was able to experience as well as uh, participate in, obviously firsthand, was, was people stood when the scriptures were being read. And for some reason, I was like, man, I really like that. There's almost like we, we honor God with our posture as well as with our ears. And so uh, sometimes it's easy to get comfortable, and I know you just got done standing but we're going to stand again. So stand to your feet right now. You can listen along with me. You can read along with me. I'm reading from the ESV. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, right now, as we unpack these words of revelation to us, these words that align our hearts and our minds, our, the whole aspect of our being to the things that matter, of, that matter most. I pray that you give us ears to hear. That we would not just sit here, that this would not come across as just a, a nice homily. But that, Father, you, by your Spirit, would speak to us now. I pray that the words that come from my mouth would not be words that are dependent upon my prior preparation, but that, Father, that the words that come from my mouth would really be the words that you have crafted from thousands of years ago for such a time as this. Penetrate our hearts, and may we walk away changed. And may we walk away free, because that is why you came. So, Father, do what only you are able to do and change us through the ministry of your word as carried out through the power of your spirit. 
so that we might exalt Jesus in our lives and bring glory to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask a question, and you might have various responses. I'm not going to actually ask you to respond, though sometimes I do like the response. But for this morning, I'm just going to ask you to just think in your own mind how you'd answer this question. And the question is this, what is the greatest threat to humanity? What is the greatest threat to humanity? Now, it's possible, depending on who you talk to, and even this morning, you might say, because we're here sitting on a Sunday morning, gathering as a church, maybe you are more spiritually minded in the moment, but throughout the week, you might be arguing and complaining about other things. But the greatest threat to humanity, for some, will say it's liberalism. Some might also say it's conservatism, however you say that. Some may say the greatest threat to humanity is the lack of world peace, right? We get the Russia-Ukraine conflict. There's conflicts going all over the place. The last 100 years have been bloodier than the rest of human history combined. Ironically, we've experienced the greatest progress in the last 100 years. Perhaps some people will say that the greatest threat to humanity is racism or white privilege or critical race theory or mental health and the lack of resources or climate change or homelessness or inflation or Roe v. Wade or the exponentially exorbitant cost of housing right now. I mean, there's all kinds of things that might come to your mind as this is the greatest threat to humanity or at least to my well-being. As one person said, at a conference I was at earlier this week, isn't this such a great time for ministry? And now that I raised your blood pressure for just a little bit, what does the Apostle John say is the greatest threat to humanity? The short answer is the greatest threat to you and to me and to all human beings on the face of the earth, both past, present, and future, is sin. Sin is the greatest threat to humanity. It's not political. It's not social. It's not mental. It's not financial. It's not racial. It's spiritual. Sin is a spiritual cancer that causes division between us and God. Sin is the, the spiritual cancer between, that causes division between us and one another, that causes division between us and the world in which we live. Sin is the root cause and the precursor of, of every atrocity and conflict, whether it be political, social, economic, and the like. One person describes sin in this way. They said, sin is the skull set amidst life's banquet. Sin is the desert breath that drinks every dew. Sin is a madness in the brain, a poison of the heart, an opioid in the will, a a frenzy in the imagination. Sin is the disease of the soul, the instrument of everlasting ruin, the midnight blackness that invests man's whole moral being and subverting the constitutional order of man's nature. 
Sin promises velvet but gives a shroud. It promises liberty but gives slavery. It promises nectar but gives gall. And while the world attempts to offer some form of response to the world's problems, or on a broader scale, while the world seeks to uh, offer answers to questions like, what is God like? Who is He really? Are people intrinsically good? Is there such a thing as sin? How important is Jesus really? We would do ourselves a better service by asking, what does God say about these matters? What is God's perspective on these big questions of life? This morning, we're going to look at four truths together. Four truths that really everyone must know. The world must know what God says about Scripture. We're going to see that the world must know what God says about Himself. We're going to kind of unpack this idea of what the world must know, what God says about sin. And then finally, the world must know what God says about Jesus. So our first point, our first affirmation or assertion is the world must know what God says about Scripture. Now, I'm not going to take too much time on this this morning, but it is important to kind of set set the tone because, again, anything I say is built upon or finds its authority in the Word of God, otherwise known as Scripture. Again, if, if the Scripture is not authoritative, then I am just a man up here sharing a few ideas. Take it or leave it. But God says that we must know something about his divine revelation to us. And that is just what it is. The Bible that you hold in your hand is not just another book that has been printed over the ages, but the Bible in your hand is the very revelation of God to us. It's God revealing himself to us. It's a divine message from a divine source to a needy people. Many people might think that the Bible is just a compilation of human opinions. But even the Scripture, though some people might argue against this reasoning, even the Scripture, for example, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, he says, no prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's why the Apostle Paul would also affirm in like manner in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says all Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. And so we see in our text here this morning in verse 5, John states up front, in a sense, kind of sets the tone. He has a lot to say, but he sets this kind of up front almost as a way of like, here's the authority, so now you would do well to listen. He says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Meaning, John's message is actually God's message. 
John isn't, uh, he's not pontificating about some, some random ideas. He's not just this old sage who has a lot of life experience and, and therefore he wants to kind of share all his life experience with these young protégés or people that are willing to listen. That's not the basis or authority in which John brings his message. No, he says, I have a message and it's a message I've received first from him. Who is him? Jesus, the son of God. He who is faithful and true, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I received a message from that guy. And now I'm proclaiming it to you. So we see that John is right up front saying, my message is authoritative and important and worth paying attention to because it actually comes from God. Now I just want to like, as I kind of reflect or just kind of chew on that point, not only does it elevate the importance of, of Scripture, but I think there's something that we can kind of apply personally in our own lives, and that is this. The best counsel that you can offer people is not your opinion, but God's. The best advice that you can give to people is not yours, but giving what God has already given to you an offering. And let me just say this as a way of on, can be on the receiving end. If you are a person who is seeking counsel as to what decision to make in a particular situation, or how to handle a particular relational struggle, or, or in whatever dilemma you might find yourself in, let me just encourage you in this way. Seek out those who will represent godly counsel. Seek out those who will actually speak on behalf of God and not their own opinion. Because our greatest need is not to hear the opinion of others. Our greatest need is to hear from God. As Peter would affirm in Matthew chapter 16, he has the words of eternal life. As a side note, sometimes your best friend is not your best counselor. They may mean well, but in the end, your greatest need is to hear from God. So seek out those who will deliver you God's message not their opinion. This is what John did. This is the message we have from him and proclaim to you. And this brings us to our second point. Not only is it, this is what God says about his divine revelation to us, but the world must also know what God says about himself. There's much that God reveals about himself in scripture, especially in verse five, but, but, but what God tells us through John is that God is light. As we even talked about last week, right? There's many ideas, there's many perspectives, there's many opinions about who this person Jesus is. And depending on where you land on that can kind of determine your eternal salvation. Everybody has an opinion about a lot of different things. The question is your opinion about God, biblically informed or subjectively felt. What God says about himself through his apostle John, through his servant John, is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, God is light 
can mean or refer to a lot of things. You'll see it throughout the pages of Scripture. God is light can refer to things like God's visible manifestation of his glory, right? You remember when, when Moses went on Mount Carmel, right? He went up there and he came down and his face was glowing. Why? Because he had been in the presence of God and God is light. And so he comes down and his face is actually lighting up, literally. But specific to this context, God is light refers to God's pureness, his holiness, his perfection. And to make sure his point crystal clear, we see that not only does he say that God is perfect and holy, he's the very definition of holiness and and, and pureness, John wants to make it crystal clear and says, and there is no darkness in him at all, none, nil, niche, absolutely none. He's making a very stark contrast between this is who God is and this is who he is not. There is no corruption, in other words, in God, not even the slightest hint. So what God is revealing to us through his servant John is that, and what the world needs to understand is that God is the very definition of perfection and holiness and purity. This means that he is unparalleled, that he has no equal, that there is no one exactly like him. And you might ask yourself this question, That sounds great, Aaron. But what significance is that to me? Why does that matter to me in my life? How is knowing God is light or perfect and holy in every shape, way, shape, and form important for my life? Well, when you survey John's usage of light, especially in his gospel, the gospel of John, You'll notice that John always kind of almost always couples light and life. He always kind of brings light and life in the same sentence. For example, in John chapter 1, in him, that is Jesus, was life. And the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what does this reveal about God? It reveals this, that God is the ultimate source of life. Because God is light, he is also life. And this makes sense because God is an eternal being. He's eternally present and he offers us eternal life. Life started with God and continues in eternity because of God. In some ways, God is love, as we will understand in a few months, but we also see that God is life. He's the very definition of what it means to live, to find our existence. Before God, before our existence, we had no life But it is God who breathed you into existence, who chose you into existence, and gave you the life and the breath in your nostrils that you are enjoying at this very moment. Sometimes it's helpful to look at the opposite as well. If God is light, and therefore if God is life, then the opposite is this. Sin is death. 
Sin can only offer you one thing, and that is death. God gives life, sin results in death. And even though Satan tries to make sin look appealing and, and somehow will, and, and can try to convince you that, that this will make you happy, this will fulfill you, this will give you what you want or what you think you need, it only brings death. As one infamous author and speaker who did not heed his own advice once said, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And if you don't believe me, let's take God's word for it. Because the world must know what God says about sin. You see, one indication as to whether a society is morally and and spiritually progressing or declining is by observing its view about sin. You might recall from last week, right, that we learned that the importance of getting it right when it comes to Jesus' true identity, because who you say Jesus is can be the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Well, I want to propose to you this morning that I believe it's also equally important that we get it right when it comes to sin, because your perspective on sin will determine you how you respond to sin, and your response to sin determines your relationship with God. In fact, there's kind of an interesting correlation between who you say Jesus is and your perspective of sin. In other words, thinking correctly about Jesus can only lead you to, to think correctly about sin, and therefore, in turn, your need for a Savior. So what does God say about sin? What is God's perspective on sin? Well, first he says, in our passage, in verse 6, he says, you cannot have fellowship with God, and at the same time, live a willfully and habitually Sinful life. Let's go to verse 6 again. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The person John is describing here is the person who, who professes to be a Christian, but whose life is marked by habitual sin and usually with no remorse. This is the person who says that I'm a follower of Jesus, but nothing or very little about their life reflects Jesus and his kingdom values. And therefore, John says they are a liar. They're living a lie. This is the person, John says, that that makes a confession of faith, but they live a life that runs completely contrary to God and his character, only showing how deceived they are. This is the person who thinks that they're good with God because they know the truth. Maybe even can, can regurgitate facts and figures and theological points and nuances. But when their life is on display, they show no inkling of transformation or Christ-likeness and only revealing how naive and blind and lost they are. Randy Alcorn said it in a recent blog, 
He says, Satan has a vested interest in making unbelievers think they are going to heaven. Satan has a vested interest in making unbelievers think they are going to heaven. Martin Luther, the, old, uh, you know, the reformer back in why, five, a little over 500 years ago, he said it this way. He says, Satan wants to make sin, saints sinners and competent sinners saints. He wants you to think that everything is all good when in fact you may be as dead as ever. But John gives a contrasting picture here of what authentic faith is. He says, but if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's a person whose life is marked by a pattern of godliness. What mark is this exactly? It's the mark of obedience. It's obedience to God's commands. It's the pursuit of righteousness. In fact, the distinguishing mark of true faith in Jesus is reflected in one's obedience to Christ. That's what Jesus says in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to save that because that's going to be a significant part of our message next week. So, we'll just let that percolate for a while. But, his point is clear. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the point he's getting at. When we walk a hypocritical life, saying one thing but living another, we are most to be pitied because we are most deceived. We're only revealing how much we don't know. But as John says, in contrast, he says, but when you walk in the light, this idea of walking means the the pattern of your life. When you walk and there's a pattern of your life of, of righteousness or you have a desire to pursue righteousness, then guess what? The blood of Jesus not only covers all your sin, but we have fellowship with one another. Interesting correlation again, right? When we choose to live in sin, it actually affects our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. In other words, your sin does not just stay nicely packed in your own life. If we choose to live in sin, it will always have a dividing effect in your relationships. And you might say, well, there's nothing like that visible in my life. But when we are not walking in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, but instead living in the flesh, then we cannot act on behalf of the Spirit. So even in the most innocent of ways, when we live a life that is not pleasing to God or there's a pattern of habitual sin in your life, then it's perhaps that God God can't use you. You may not respond to situations that you would have otherwise or vice versa. Now let me also say this as a way of qualification and we'll again unpack it in more detail next week. You might be wondering, well, wait a second. Aaron, I know I sin. I sinned this morning. What does that mean in regards to my salvation? Let me just say this very briefly, and we'll unpack it more thoroughly next week. We're talking about the pattern, the habit, 
in one's life. When, Paul, when John uses this word to walk, it's kind of the, 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 the consistent manner in which you live your life. Because as we're going to see in just a second, we all sin. We all fall short. We are all in need of constant confession. But the contrast that John is talking about are people that live what's called antinomianism. There's a nice big word for you. It's basically anti-law. It's like I can profess all I want, but living my life, I can live it on my terms. It does not matter. That's what Gnosticism actually promoted. Since the, the sense of physical is evil and the spiritual is only good, it doesn't matter how you live your life. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? As the Roman mantra went. And John's like, actually, no. It does matter how you live. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. But I just wanted to bring a sense of reassurance. We're not talking about people that sin because that disqualifies all of us in here. We're talking about the pattern. And that is something that you have to grapple honestly with Jesus. Lord, is there an habitual pattern in my life that is not pleasing to you? Is there an area of my life in which I have been living in constant deception? And perhaps today is the day in which you are freed from that. The chains are released and you can walk in freedom. John goes also to say that, or God says through John, that everyone is born a sinner and is in need of divine forgiveness. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Can the, the, the person that John is confronting here is the person who says, I'm actually not a sinner. I'm a good person who sometimes does bad things. Ever met anybody like that? I'm, we're all good people. That's, that's, a, that's probably the very common perspective. We're good people. People are good and sometimes do bad things. But what does God say about that statement or assertion? God says, no, you're not good. In fact, you're, you're worse off than you even think you are. And you're worse off than your friends think you are. The Bible says in, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what do we get? What do we deserve? What do we inherit because of that sin? Well, Romans 6 also says, the wages of sin is death. It's important that we understand, brothers and sisters, it's important that we understand God's perspective on sin, and we need to understand our identity. When we are born into sin, we sin because that is in our nature. One person said it this way, you're not a sinner because you sin, you sin because you're a sinner. The reason why you do bad things is because you're bad. Well, this is a really encouraging message, isn't it? That's what makes the gospel so glorious. We'll get to that in just a second. See, the gospel isn't glorious until you realize how bad off you really are. Jesus isn't incredibly amazing until you realize how bad you really are. The Bible tells us you are dead in your sin. You're actually a bad person. But God loves you. 
He's going to make you an incredibly amazing person. And it's not what I think about myself or what I choose for myself. It's what God is able to do divinely and supernaturally to transform you. Let me just say this real quick before we get to the good part, before we get to the dessert. God says no one reaches a state of sinless sinlessness or perfection in this life. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, this is all these if we say statements, right? John's given all these different scenarios. The kind of person who would say this, the kind of person who would say that. Now this is the kind of person who says, yes, I acknowledge that I'm born a sinner, but I've finally reached a place in which I no longer sin. And so now I am no longer a sinner. Charles Spurgeon actually wrote a, uh, relayed a, a kind of a humorous story about a man who came into his church. And uh, this man had actually said to Charles Spurgeon after a sermon, well, you're talking about all this sin, but I'm actually perfect now. I was a sinner, but I am no longer a sinner because now I don't sin. Intrigued, Spurgeon invited the man over for dinner to hear him out. And after the man spoke, Charles stood up from the table and took a glass of water and threw it in the man's face. Immediately, this perfect man showed his true colors with angry and verbal response. Upon which Spurgeon, with a twinkle in his eye, said, Ah, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim. He had simply fainted, and I have revived him but with but a glass of water. <laughs> the point is this. No one reaches a state of perfection on this side of eternity. Now, for most of us in here, I'm sure we can be like, yeah, I know me. <laughs> this morning was case in point, you know. But no one reaches a state of perfection And even those of us who have repented of our sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ will continue to battle sin in our lives. This is the reality of being in the already but not yet part of God's redemptive plan. God has saved us. He has declared us righteous. He has declared us innocent. He has declared us pure and free. That is how God regards us in Christ Jesus. It's incredible. But we're not yet actually that. Because what we are declared to be and what we are actually, who we actually are, are, some, are two different things. And so when we enter into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, what we are entering into is God says, now you are free, you are pure, you're a son, you, are, you have eyes to see, and now God is in the process of transforming us to become what he's already declared about us. I'm so glad that we have the status of perfection and righteousness, even though I don't yet have the daily perfection, even though it's not always true of me. So what do we do when we sin then? Because we are still going to continue to sin, what do we do? What is our response? And this is where verse 9 is glorious. Please, I know I invited you memorizing the whole book of 1 John. How are we doing with that, by the way? (laughs) Just a little plug there. Maybe just a little side note too. Uh, if you're not going to memorize First John, I love what Pastor Mike said. He said, I'm not really going to try to memorize it, but I'm going to listen to it every single day. Just listen to it every single day. Guess what? If you do that, you're going to memorize it. It's going to be sinking deep in your heart, and it's going to be oh so good. 
But verse 9, if you're not jumping on that, is a verse I would say, please memorize this and put into practice every day. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a, an invitation written to believers in Jesus Christ. This isn't written to the unbelievers. This is not written to the pagans. This is written to those who are followers of Jesus, sons and daughters of the kingdom. And the reason why God gives us this glorious invitation is because He wants you to be free. And what we need to understand is when God talks about sin, He's like, sin actually severs that fellowship that we have with one another. It doesn't change or sever your sonship or daughtership, but it does sever your fellowship with both God and one another. You don't, don't, you don't become an unadopted, so to speak. God doesn't say, you know what, every time you sin, you're out, and every time you confess, you're back in, and you swing back and forth every single day, and you just hope by your dying breath that you're on the, the other side of the pendulum swing, right? No, remember what John says, I write these things to you so that you may know your name is written in the book of life, that you may know you have eternal life. So we believe that when God adopts you and saves you, that's permanent, and the way in which you know that is in fact true of you, this is what John is unpacking for us. This is the, the symptoms, this is the things that we can look to to prove to ourselves, oh, I am in fact a child of the king. Not perfect, but I do care about righteousness. And when I do fall short, and when I do stumble and fall, when I do mess it up, because we will, and I would be willing to say every single day in some way, shape, or form, then Jesus says, just confess Run boldly before the throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. Confess and be right so that fellowship can be restored. Fourth and finally, the world must know what God says about His Son, Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 9 invites us to confess our sins. And now John takes it a step further and says, not only confess your sins, but run to Jesus. Run to your Savior. Run to your advocate. The one who is interceding on your behalf between you and the Father. Run to Him. He's your advocate. An advocate means to be a helper. It means to be a, it's a person who comes alongside another one in a time of need. Now, why is Jesus our advocate? Well, it's said in the second verse, because he, was, he became the propitiation. There's a nice big word, right? Propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? It means to satisfy. It means to be, become a substitute. Jesus became a substitute for our sin. 
What does Scripture teach us? The wages of sin is death, but Jesus can go, I know that's what you deserve, but here's what I offer you. I'm going to take your punishment, I'm going to take what you deserve, and you're going to take my righteousness. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin, so we could be made right with God through Christ. We call it the great exchange, this divine exchange. Word sin, and God says, now you're righteous. Jesus is perfect. He's the only one that's righteous. And guess what God says? I'm putting your guilt and your sin onto him, and you get to walk in newness of life. By the way, if we're trying to promote a a theology of fairness, that is the most unfair gift that we have ever received. Because thank God we are not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy and grace is, right? That we don't get what we deserve and we actually inherit something that we, do, that we should never get in the first place. And that's what makes the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, so glorious. When we understand God's perspective on sin and when we finally come to the place where we're like, man, I actually am a bad person, then the gospel goes, oh, and then God, Jesus is like, now we can do some real business here. What was the first lesson in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus' first sermon, he comes in right from the gates, right? Boom, what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Wait, who are the poor in spirit? The people that realize how bad they are. And then they sit to see how glorious Jesus the Savior is. Jesus Christ, as one commentator said, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holiness and turned away his righteousness, his righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. The hell that we should have, been, that we should have experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. And what is our response? Just a wholehearted thank you. And the way we say thank you to God is by another term called repentance. We say thank you by repenting of our sin. Confessing things that God already knows about us. And he says, now receive the abundant life that I offer freely, that I desire to lavish on to you. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you all stand with with Jesus. I do know that we all battle sin, all of us. And I know that we're all tempted in various ways. And though all of us are unique in our own struggle and fight against sin, we also have a common, a common uh, connection or bond, and that is this, because we have a one solution, and that is Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement and worthy of being received by everyone in here that Christ came to save sinners. He came to save you. He came to set you 
free. And he offers it this morning. I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Perhaps some of you have never said yes to Jesus yet. Perhaps some of you have thought you said yes to Jesus. But if you were taking an honest inventory of your life, maybe you would say, there's really very little to show that looks like Christ. Let me just say to you, salvation is a free gift for you today. And can I just say this because we just had a memorial yesterday for Mr. Collins. Get to see a bunch of his family members right there. Memorials are always an incredible opportunity, really, to take honest reflection of our own life, to take inventory of our own life and go, where do I really stand with God? Am I really right with Jesus? Have my sins really been forgiven? Have I been living a, a life of delusion and, and been deceived? Or am I really wholeheartedly all in for Christ? Mm-hmm.